Let's return, brothers and sisters, to the book of Genesis in the third chapter. Thankful for the ministry of Teacher McGowan in my place last Sunday morning. So good to be back with you and look forward to returning to this very momentous moment. <laughs> Genesis 3. I'm going to be reading a larger portion, please, starting at verse 14. I'll read through verse 19. Genesis chapter 3. Is the word of God. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain, and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but... He shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, this is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Seek the face of God and assistance on this word preached. Father, we return, we're eager to know more of what you are like. What we might expect of you in our own day, in our own relationship with you, through what's revealed here in this critical moment. So, as we always do, we ask for more of your spirit than even you've given thus far in our worship. For the preacher, may he be anointed by that spirit. For the hearers, may they have their hearts opened and warmed and drawn to you by your own voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We really did leave our story at a very dramatic moment, brothers and sisters. A dramatic moment, certainly for our first parents, Adam and Eve. They're standing guilty before God. A lot of their most flagrant disobedience. 
Uh, they've offered their feeble and blame-shifting excuses for what they've done, but they've only compounded their guilt by their impenitence. And as we left them, they're waiting to hear what God will say. They're waiting as well to see what God will do. Now, the Creator, for his part, had entered the garden with questions first. As we saw, there are questions that expressed his sadness, what they've done, where are you? Uh, questions that have come as an invitation to them to repent of what they've done. Have you eaten? the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. But as we've seen, brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're incapable in themselves of any true sorrow for sin or desire even for reconciliation. They've begun a new life of sin and they will only grow more and more guilty and they will only grow more and more distant from God apart from something he might choose to do. So at this point, chapter 3, verse 14, we're waiting to see what God will say and what he will do. And what he says, what he does, will determine the rest of human history. We've emphasized quite rightly how fateful Adam's decision was. He too, by his act of will, determined something staggering about the rest of human history. Adam was given that role in the exercise of his will, and by his disobedience, he has determined the rest of human history, but not in an ultimate sense. What God says next will ultimately determine whether there's any hope. For mankind. These are called by various scholars the judgment oracles of Genesis chapter 3, the passage that I just read in your hearing. And we're going to be looking very closely at them in the weeks that are coming. What I want to do today is look at them in their totality and the first appreciate what they altogether reveal about. God, indeed, what they together tell us about his response to the insurrection he's confronted with. So we're going to divide our time under these headings this morning, the fall of man and the prerogative of God, that's what we'll look at first, then the fall of man and the good intentions of God, and then we'll look at the fall of man and kingdoms in conflict. So, first, let's consider, before we consider what God does, let's consider what he has every right to do. Kids, that's what I mean by the word prerogative. You might in your house, for example, children, have no prerogative to decide whether you're going to eat your supper or not. You have no choice in the matter, in other words. You don't have the right to say, I don't think I'm going to eat my vegetables today. Kids, you have no prerogative, as we say it, in that sense, but you might very well have a prerogative whether you'll have dessert. You might say, 
as strange as this may sound, I don't think I'll have dessert, Mom. And your mom might say, okay, that's your prerogative. That's a big word for saying you have the right, in that case, to make that decision. When we talk about the prerogative of God, we're talking about what in this moment, at this point, he has every right to do. I do think this story is so very familiar to us. We might acquire the sense over time that the next thing that happens at this moment is, well, it's the only thing that could happen. What God says and does is the only thing he could say or do. But of course, that's not the case, is it? I'd like to consider with you another scenario. Something that was in God's prerogative to do. And we'll draw from the rest of Scripture what we know about God in envisioning this scenario. Number one, it was God's prerogative at this moment to strike our first parents dead in his wrath. After all he had said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We've already seen they have already fallen under that curse spiritually. They are separate from God, alienated from God, with no desire for reconciliation. They've already experienced spiritual death. My point is simply that God could have administered both spiritual and physical death immediately upon their rebellion. And this is not so very far-fetched if you know the rest of your Bibles. God, from time to time, does exactly that. Children, you know these dreadful stories in the Bible, don't you? The story of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. They disobey God in the most flagrant way, in the holiest place. They offer strange fire, and God strikes them dead. You know about the man whose name? You know almost nothing about him other than his name, Uzzah, and what he does on that fateful moment. And David is transporting the ark into the city and it looks like it's going to fall and Uzzah touches it in order to steady it and God strikes him dead. Children, you know that story. It's not just Old Testament. There's a husband and a wife who lie to the church, but Peter says you lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. A man and his wife are struck dead. We have precedent for this, and we're simply observer, observing it was God's prerogative to do that at this moment. Further, secondly, it was God's prerogative at this moment to cast Adam and Eve into hell. We've already seen that that's his response to the rebellion of the angels. Second Peter 2, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into the judgment. We will see God cast Adam and Eve out of that most holy place, the garden. But my point here is that he would have been justified in casting them out of the earth into hell, like he'd cast the angels out of heaven into hell. It was his prerogative. One more thing I'll say about his prerogative. Brothers and sisters, it was God's prerogative at this moment 
to cleanse the earth of all evil doers, men and angels alike, to restore the earth to its original perfection and to establish within it a new race of God's image bearers to dwell with him forever. That was his prerogative. And as I have expressed it that way, I hope you hear something familiar about this. This is what the rest of Scripture teaches that is, in fact, God's intention on the last day, the judgment day that's certainly coming when he makes a new heaven and new earth. And I'm simply pointing out it was God's prerogative. For judgment day to happen right then, there, his prerogative. What would that have been like? A new Adam, new Eve, no source of temptation, no serpent in the garden, no deception, no fall, no sin, no centuries indeed, no millennia of suffering. You could well imagine that that would have been to the glory of God in its own way. He would have been certainly putting on display his holiness, his utter aversion to all that's evil, if within moments of that rebellion of Adam and Eve, he had cast out of his perfect world all causes of wickedness. It would have put on display his power, to be sure, dealing so swiftly and mightily with his opponents. Even his wisdom, creating the world was a display of wisdom, creating a whole second world in short order. More wisdom on display and this, would is, this is what such a scenario would have resulted in. The pattern of human history would be creation, fall, judgment, new creation. Maybe you're thinking, what is so edifying about this thought experiment? Why are we even doing this? It's not what actually happens. It's all hypothetical. So what's the use? Listen, please. I think it's crucial to your full appreciation of what God actually does to understand what he had full right to do. It's going to be by comparing what we in Adam deserve with what God had every right to do. It's going to enable us to stand in awe and gratitude of what he actually does. You know what was missing in that scenario. Creation, fall, judgment, new creation. You know what's missing? Redemption. Redemption, which is simply to say the resolve of God that will now be revealed to show mercy to Adam and Eve and their sinful descendants to bring about their rescue from sin and Satan and their restoration to fellowship with himself and only after what we've come to call a whole history of redemption bringing about new creation. Brothers and sisters, what God instead does here in this moment along with pronouncing judgment as we will see is to declare his intentions to reclaim those who've fallen. And their world. 
This will make for a history. It is messy, to be sure. But so much more glorious to God. Because it will include his favorite purpose. Mercy and grace. The fall of man and the prerogative of God. Let's look secondly at the fall of man and the good intentions of God. Perhaps as I read a moment ago, you recognize this is heavy words indeed that God gives first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to Adam, and they're rightly understood as words of judgment. They're curses, in fact. Three distinct curses. We're going to weigh them each in the days ahead. But I want you to appreciate today the signal in the midst of the curses that God gives of his good intentions. Despite man's rebellion, in each of these curses, there are signs that are very hopeful. What God now intends to do. Uh, They're very explicit in his words to the serpent. They're more implicit in the words to the woman and the man. And we'll start with the woman and the man. Just touch on this and then we'll return for a closer look at his word to the serpent. In verse 16 and 17 and what follows that, you have these oracles of doom. They're also called upon the woman and upon the man. And as I think about what my sermon titles are going to be, when I look at those more closely, I've been toying with the idea of the curse of being a woman. The curse of being a man. We'll see if those survive the editing process, but it's all very grim. What God has to say to Eve and then Adam. But, but, this we cannot miss. Something truly surprising, wonderful, Indeed, gracious of God that underlies all these grim words of judgment. It's something I've already had occasion to point out to you before. Adam and Eve, remember, had been called to a godlike mission in the earth. And they haven't been fired. That really is remarkable. The oracle of doom upon the woman is all about what her particular part in this mission will now entail, that sin, part of life, pain, she'll bring forth children. The oracle of doom upon the man is all about what his particular part of the mission, his particular emphasis, subduing the earth, it's going to be painful. We'll look at that. Friends, sisters, think about it. Be amazed at this. Adam and Eve have shown themselves criminally insubordinate towards the one who called them, who gave them this calling. They've rendered themselves incompetent now to fulfill the calling. But somehow, even after all that is said to them in Genesis 3, by way of judgment upon them, they are still on the job. They've not been relieved their privileges and responsibilities. That's pretty remarkable, especially in light of the way that human history will unfold and how mixed will be the fruit of 
Adam and Eve and their descendants fulfilling this commission that God has given, man will subdue the earth and many inventions of great beauty and utility will come and as you know, he will pollute the planet and he'll deface the earth and he'll harm his fellow man with his wondrous inventions as well. Man and woman will together be able to fill the whole earth with image bearers of God. They will bring forth even more notorious sinners than themselves. It really is quite striking, brothers and sisters, given the treason that they are guilty of, what is not part of God's word to them. God could have said, because you've rebelled against my rule, you will no longer rule on my behalf. could have said that. Because you have abused the image I've placed upon you, you will no longer be entrusted with multiplying that image. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't say that. Because he has a plan of reclaiming his rule in the lives of the children of Eve and restoring his image in them. So if you're Adam and Eve, and if you have a hot clue about what is being said and what is not being said, as you hear these words, there's room for relief, despite all their severity, you're still called to this godlike mission. Amen. We'll come back to those things. Let's look now at the good intentions of God behind the curse on the serpent. So that's, of course, in verse 14 and 15. The story is made clear, we've seen this already, that in this rebellion of Adam and Eve that's at the instigation of the serpent introduced to us in the very first verse of chapter 3, we've realized there's something more than a creaturely snake that's an agent here in and behind this serpent is... We called it a dark force, a demonic being, God's first, greatest foe. We've seen that already. So, when the first words out of God's mouth in response to the rebellion led by the serpent are words of judgment upon the snake. There's reason for some hope. That his word of judgment on Satan will be good for man, for mankind. That's exactly what Genesis 3, 14 and 15 provide. Now, uh, there's been a great deal of discussion over the millennia, I suppose, about exactly whom God is speaking to as he pronounces this curse in 14 and 15. Is it being pronounced against a whole class of creatures we call reptiles, more specifically snakes? Or is it the demonic being that is being addressed? And of course the answer is both. Both. So you see in verse 14 in particular there's a curse pronounced against the creature that we know to this day of. Snakes. Because you've done this, he says. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
as he compares the serpent with the livestock and all the beasts of the field, it makes it very clear that snakes are being singled out here. The effect of this judgment is something we see to this day. Kids, snakes slither. That's how they get around, right? They slither. They don't have a way, we could say, of holding themselves up from the ground, do they? It's not the way snakes are. So as a consequence, whatever filth is there on the ground, that's what they have to slide through. They live their lives that way. In the dust of the earth, they are below all the other creatures of the field. And we actually have expressions like that, don't we? Lower than a snake's belly. One of our expressions, I think, in the South. That's pretty low. Questions arise, of course. One of them is, uh, if slithering on the ground is a result of the curse, then what was this original snake like? We've already touched on this. Kids, we're just left to our imagination on this. So you kids, can you're just as much an authority in the answer to this as the rest of us. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some have supposed that God originally created the snake with legs, so it crawled like other creatures. Some, interestingly, have said the snake may well have been able to fly. The serpent once had wings. So when God brings him down into the dust, it really is quite a degradation. There's even the thought by others that this serpent in the garden was first a dragon. That when John in Revelation speaks of that great dragon, Satan, he's referring to what he once looked like, a magnificent creature, able to fly and all the rest, and God humbles him to the dust. This is interesting, and it's all speculation. We don't know. Another question that arises is, if the serpent in the garden was just an instrument of Satan, why would the serpent fall under God's curse? You can see that because you know that beasts of the earth don't have souls as men do. They don't have wills. They can't be in conscious rebellion against God. So why would a dumb snake be punished by God? Some grappling with that, they compare the law of Moses, which stipulated that even the ox that gores a man must be put to death and his owner must suffer consequences as well. God's simply expressing his antipathy here, both to Satan and to Satan's chosen instrument. I think that's fair to say, indeed. This is the real thing to note. God curses this particular part of the animal kingdom. He's making a symbol out of snakes. His last, it's a sign of his lasting curse on Satan in the form that snakes will take. There'll be a, a sign of Satan's activity and all its subtlety and all of its slyness and the fate of snakes crawl on their belly and eat dust will be God's sign of the fate of his archenemy. 
Satan. This will perhaps occur to you the next time you see a snake. And most of you, having a most rational and normal revulsion at the sight, you'll be reminded that that is something built into our world that's pointing to something much bigger. God has that kind of revulsion, and we are rightly to have that fear and revulsion and even a violent response to the great foe of our souls, Satan. That's a curse pronounced on the creature, but this verse 15 makes clear there's a curse pronounced on the demonic being making use of the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, folks, those words are so very significant. They're going to get their own sermon and their own Sunday. But just notice this much for now. God's curse is directed now at something more than a mere physical reptilian creature. He speaks, you see it in uh, verse 15 of the serpent having an ongoing enmity with the woman. That word is uh, used in other places of a murderous desire. There's to be enmity between. He's attributing something of a rational hatred now to this serpent. He speaks of the serpent and the woman both as having offspring. They will, in their offspring, carry on this hostility for generations to come and especially when we see him speak in the words, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's quite clear he's looking past the actual snake in the garden. God says at that moment, you, He's talking to the devil. That first rebel against his rule, the one who incited rebellion against God among his holy angels, the one who's now seduced the woman and through her the man so that they've joined his insurrection. He's talking not to a snake or even about snakes in general. He's talking to his arch enemy, Satan. Brothers and sisters, in this little word, God is foretelling the whole history of men and angels. Follow me. Satan will have offspring in the earth. They are those that he will successfully seduce and take captive among men. In our Lord's words, they will have Satan as their father. That's how Jesus spoke. The woman, too, will have offspring in the earth, those who hate the devil and oppose him, and they will come to be known also as the children of God. And the enmity, the hostility between them will bring suffering to both. But for the children of Eve, it'll be like the man who's suffering the strike of a snake on his heel. For Satan, his fate will be to have his head crushed 
seed of the woman. What we're doing this morning, this glorious moment of God's word to the serpent, is to see how his good intentions are revealed towards man. So, brothers and sisters, this enmity that God is speaking of, that he'll place between the two, it's for the good of Eve's offspring. Even the serpent had struck up a friendship, you might say, a partnership in crime, you might say. If that is left alone, that fellowship in sin will lead to the damnation of all of Eve's children. But God's not going to leave it alone. This is his first word of judgment upon the serpent. It's his plan that he's going to break that alliance. He's going to disrupt that partnership. He will put in the place of that friendship, enmity. He'll make Eve's children the enemies of Satan. The enemy of God's enemies become God's friends. Here's how you might want to think of what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. He's saying to his enemy, you can't have her. You've seduced her, but I will win her back. You've gained her allegiance. I'm about to undo that allegiance. Oh, you've become chummy with the mother of all mankind hoping the same for her children, but I'm about to make her and her children your doom. Satan is essentially uh, the creator of heaven and earth being told this is war. I will fight for the woman and for her children. I will turn them against you, even as you have turned them against me. And one day I will make them the means by which you are crushed and destroyed. And don't forget that he says all of this to Satan. Adam and Eve are listening in. He says it in their hearing. They're hearing the word, first word of hope for themselves. They're not told by God's word when the Lord opened their hearts, gave them the gift of faith, hope in God, his goodness. But I like to think, I like to think he did that right here when they're first hearing a glimmer of the gospel, he curses his enemy. The fall of man and the prerogative of God. The fall of man and the good intentions of God. And let's conclude by looking at the fall of man and the kingdoms in conflict. So you know that Genesis 3.15 is called the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, it's the first place that there's anything of God declaring his intentions to redeem mankind. And we should not overlook this fact. God declares his intentions towards redemption in the midst of a declaration of war. 
against his enemies. So redemption is going to come by means of what's been called the commencement of hostility. So from this moment forward, brothers and sisters, by God's ordaining, there will be two kingdoms at war over planet Earth and mankind. It's the holy war that the rest of the Bible is all about. Two things you need to reckon with. This moment we're looking at in Genesis 3. Number one, you need to reckon with the fact that with the fall of man, Satan became the ruler of this world. That's not my words. That's the words of, for example, our Lord Jesus himself. In John's gospel, you find him speaking of Satan as the ruler of this world. In Matthew's gospel, he speaks of Satan's kingdom. The Apostle Paul takes his cue from Jesus and he speaks of the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, he refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. John, the Apostle John, has the most sobering things to say about Satan's kingdom in the earth. He speaks of he who is in the world. He says in 1 John 5, we know we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In Revelation 2, he speaks of Satan having a throne here on earth. Brothers and sisters, that's what's happening at this moment in Genesis 3. And that doesn't mean for a moment that God was somehow unseated from his throne in heaven by which he rules over the earth. Never a moment in which God loses his sovereign control over everything that happens on planet Earth. Indeed, I have found myself enjoying the picture we have of God walking into the garden, being the one who is in complete control and be- declares the future. Nothing here has taken him by surprise, but theologians speak of his permissive will. It's part of his will of permission that a new kingdom will rise that's a rival to his own. The fall of man and the rise of Satan to the throne of the kingdom of this world is part of his plan. It takes place here. You reckon with that. And then, brothers and sisters, rejoice at this. Genesis 3.15 makes very clear, since the fall of man, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom will be at war and God will have the victory. So the fact that God is fighting for us is good news. The fact that God will win this fight is even better news. And in Genesis 3.15, God's foretelling not just a great war that's going to be waged throughout human history. He's also declaring the final outcome of that war. Satan will be crushed. We'll see that that will come about by means of the seed of the woman. Next week, we'll dwell on just that. You know his name. His name is Jesus. 
for now, brothers and sisters, this is what makes sense of this expression that our Lord Jesus used when he comes in his ministry, this expression, the gospel of the kingdom. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What was this good news that Jesus was proclaiming? He's coming to say there's about to be a turn in the tide of the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. This has everything to do with the fact that he himself is the king of the kingdom of God. He's about to do something that will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, and he is going to be restoring his rule in the hearts of men throughout the earth such that kingdoms formerly in rebellion against him as the anointed of God will become part of the very kingdom of God. That's what's contained in that little expression, the gospel of the kingdom. Children, you know that when Jesus shows up, the demons don't like it. Remember? Remember that part of the story? Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, you are the son of God. One of our Lord's most recurring miracles is to cast out demons, these uh, compatriots of Satan. It's, he says, it's by the spirit, if it's by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is why on the eve of our Lord's death and resurrection, he can say, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's speaking of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. There in his day, kingdoms and conflict leading to a great victory for God over all his enemies. So there's a lot revealed in this moment. I hope I've shown you how significant a moment this is. Transitioning from verse 13 to verse 14 is such a significant moment. What will God say and do in this fateful moment when his servants stand guilty of rebellion, when his arch enemy is gloating over his victory Will he as the creator in holy wrath and all justice annihilate all that he has made? Will he start fresh with the new heavens and new earth? Will he simply abandon the world and its residents to this new knowledge of evil they have chosen? Will he, in the words of our catechism, leave all mankind in a state misery, leave them captive to their new cruel Lord, Satan. Well, folks, that's apparently not the character of our God, for which we will be eternally grateful. What he actually says to the evil one who sought to rob him of all his creatures and all his creation, you know what he says? In a word, he says to his enemy, 
mine. What does he do in response to that insurrection, that hostage-taking? He says, this is war. It's a dreadful moment. It's a thrilling moment in the history of the kingdom of God. Our God, king of heaven and earth, becomes a warrior king in this moment. There's something glorious about God's founding of his kingdom on earth in Genesis 1 and 2. Something glorious. And there's something even more glorious in his reclaiming that kingdom in Genesis 3 through Revelation 22. He does so on the field Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, our gracious God, we take comfort in your fury. As it falls upon our foe, we find hope in your oracle of doom, the one who would otherwise hold us captive to do his will. We tremble what we deserve, indeed at what you have every right to do to include us, his fate. But on the basis of your word and your mighty acts throughout history and above all, the coming of your son, you crush the serpent's head. We take comfort in your fury against our foe. Oh, Lord, we pray, in light of that fury, we will flee. The only safe place is in your Son, our Savior. We pray that you'll hasten the day. Your great apostle says, you will crush Satan under our feet, as we are in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.